Good morning. Good morning. Uh, no, I want everybody. I don't think that we got. I don't think that they made themselves known. But I have some special guests in the audience. Got it? Guys, good there. Okay. All right. Got some special guests. You might want to go down a little lower because I'm going to get loud. I promise. I got some special guests in the audience. I mean, my in-laws, Mitch and Linda Moore, sitting right over here, please. Special for me, they have never seen me preach before. So, in person, in person I guess, <laughs> online. So, I'm excited to have them here this morning, and I'm excited to be with you all. Um, this is probably be the last time I ever get to preach to you in this way, my church family. And that's bittersweet because I love you all, and I'm so excited. It's not because you guys are like, don't come back here, it's because you don't know how many faithful men of God who will have preached in the upcoming 20, 30, 40, 50 years. The Lord has built up this church in a way. You, you don't need me. You're going to have faithful preachers for a long, long time. So I just praise God for this church family. I'm so thankful you had us part of it. Let's get going. Today, we're going to hear a story about delivery. This past year, the country has had a whole explosion of deliveries. There are food deliveries, which I'm not a big fan of. I don't like their unreliability about the timing and the quality. I'd rather be in control of that process, so I'll go and pick it up. However, I'm a huge fan of Amazon deliveries. See, these guys haven't figured out. When I buy something, I can start the process quickly and efficiently from my phone, or even just talking to a strange voice in my kitchen. <laughs> I can receive clear updates of when the package is to arrive, and they execute it perfectly most of the time. Sometimes I can place my order and even receive it within a half day. And to achieve this unprecedented uh, concordination of extremely minute details that all come together just from a command that says, Alexa, order my toothpaste. <laughs> Magically, there turns a box on my doorstep in the afternoon. Of course, sometimes deliveries require more time. It might take multiple plane rides or additional procurement, but you can count on Amazon to get that far off and unique item delivered. So it is with the Lord. And the word of his command, something, anything can be delivered immediately. And yet, sometimes the way in which such a command is fulfilled is through a series of, uh, of events for various reasons. The difference is that in either case, the deliveries God makes are at the right time in the right place, and for a purpose every time. We see this with Jesus. Some deliveries were in the form of immediate healing. Others, he would say, would be fulfilled at a time in the future. Our time today will be spent examining a specific delivery in the Bible that was much anticipated. This is not the six-pack of socks with prime two-day delivery. This is the small business, custom-made Brazilian leather bag with an estimated arrival date of August 10th to 11th. <laughs> so we're going to break up our passage into two sections. The package and the delivery. In the package portion, we're going to look at the who and what was delivered. In the delivery portion, we will look at the where, when, how, and why this was delivered. Now, this is going to be a, a kind of deep and intense exercise in biblical theology. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages because so much of the moment that we'll be looking at has this backstory, this history that, in order to be properly understood, you, you've got to know a lot. It's amazing what the Lord has done to coordinate this delivery. So let's read Joshua chapter 4, verses 18 through 24. 
Verse 18. When the priest carrying up the Ark of the Lord's covenant came up from the middle of the Jordan, and their feet stepped out on solid ground, the waters of the Jordan resumed their course, flowing over all the banks as before. The people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the esteemed on the eastern limits of Jericho. Then Joshua set up in Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken from the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your children ask their fathers, What is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you crossed over. Just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we crossed over. This is so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty, and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask this morning that you help us to apply it to our hearts and receive from you what you have. Just say in order to properly understand this passage, as I said, it's necessary that we do some, some deep work with the biblical narrative. God himself is saying to the people that they are to repeat and understand the story over and over. So let's imagine for a minute a scene. Gilgal, in large text across the bottom of the screen. A large area with a huge mass of people heading east. A large river on the street right. But the water stops as if there was a dam. The screen zooms to the west bank of this dry portion of the river where droves of people are walking west. The last of this mass of humanity are men in robes holding a large box covered in a blue drape straining up onto the bank carefully helping to bring this box and each other up and out of this dry riverbed. Perhaps they're looking out to be sure that there are none behind them. As the last of the group steps, as the last of the group steps his foot onto the bank, the water begins to flow where the last footprint is made. The waters crash into the previously dry riverbed. As this happens, these middle-aged priests look on in awe, along with the older but strong man who stares deeply into the waters as the camera cuts back to these Russian waters. When the shot cuts away from the water, it is now daybreak. The same old man, but now much younger, is watching a similar scene in shock. Here's the scene in Exodus 14. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in and in his servant, Moses. The screen then hands and zooms out to a similar scene of the Sea of Humanity in an arid desert, but this time the water is on screen left, and the text at the bottom reads, Red Sea. Let's get back to this question of who is being delivered, and with what? Our passage at the Jordan makes clear that the people across the river there were the same group, the same people as those who crossed the Red Sea. 
The people in both scenes were God's chosen people, Hebrews, Israelites. Now, some of them were actually the same people, but others were not. For instance, the priests noted in verse 1, they were likely children during the crossing of the Red Sea. The man Joshua was a disciple of Moses. He was Moses was not even mentioned this time of the Jordan because he had died by that time. Many had died on the journey from the Red Sea to the Jordan. But all who finished the journey were descendants of Abraham. Abraham was called out by God this way. Genesis 12 reads, The Lord said to Abraham, Go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. All the people on this journey understood this call of their ancestor well. And more than that, they also understood and had lived a 400-year enslavement in Egypt that was a fulfillment of another revelation that Abraham had received after his call from God. And listen to this. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know this for certain. Your offsprings will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward, they will go out with many possessions. The promises, the fulfillment of these promises, made it clear who God's people were to themselves and to the nations who were watching their movements. After crossing the Jordan, Joshua carried out the sign of his covenant by circumcising the men who had been on this journey. All of this is to say that these people had a history that was leading to this moment of crossing the Jordan. Of course, a great migration would come with a lot of animals and gear, but along with the who came a what. The most significant what that was being delivered was a large gold box it was covered in a blue cloth. It wasn't just any large gold box. This box was called the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. You may have heard of it. A guy named Indiana Jones was looking for it. <laughs> Listen to this, what this box was like. Exodus 25, verse 10. They are to make an Ark of Acacia. 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. It's about four by two by two. Overlaid with pure gold. Overlaid both inside and out. Also make a gold molding all around it. Cast four gold rings for it and place it and place them on its four feet. Two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the side of the ark in order to carry the ark through. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They must not be removed from But the tablets of the testimony that I will give you in the ark. Make a mercy seat of pure gold, 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Make two cherubim, cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work. At the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. At its two ends, make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim are to have wings spread out above them, covering the mercy seat with their wings. They are to face one another. The faces of the cherubim should be toward the mercy seat. Set the mercy seat on top of the ark. And put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. So, all the things that were being delivered, just in their physical form, this was by far the most valuable box. 
Not only is it a gold, it's beautiful, but inside are the, the tablets that were written by the very hand of God. That wasn't even what truly made this box special. For even these people, and all of us in this room, have been written by the hand of God in his own image. In fact, if they had worshipped this box and its cherubim images, it would have been idolatry no different than the other nations. What made this box special is what God designated it for. He says, I will meet with you there above the mercy seat. Between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. This box would be the, the place that God would fill with glory. It would be the symbol of his movement with his people. A sign that God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people. And he and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And more than that, this ark was not stagnant to be locked away under a pyramid, for instance, or carried in the pocket of an Israelite for good luck. God would direct the movement of the ark, the place of the ark, the manner of its annual, the access to it. When the people would settle for some time, the ark would be set inside a tabernacle, a tent. And a, a veil would be would be placed in front of it, designating the area where the ark stood as the most holy place. Then the cloud would, would cover this whole tent and the glory would fill the tabernacle. And at night, this cloud would be filled with fire so that all could see it. He says to Moses, this is after two of Aaron's sons died. He says, tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the veil in front of the mercy seat of the ark, or else he will die. Not because this ark was made of earthen materials, but because he says, I appear the cloud above the cloud in above the mercy seat in the cloud. And I and holy. Now, whenever God was pleased to move the people, he would take up this cloud that was above the tent, and the people would follow it until it rested. And there they would set up camp again. And during each migration, the ark was not to be trifled with. A certain group of priests, the Kohathites, they would have to enter the tabernacle when the cloud was brought up, and they would take the veil that was cutting off the most holy place, and they would put it over to cover the ark. Then they would take the poles that were on the that were for the rings of the side of the ark, and they would they would pick it up by these poles, carefully not to touch the ark itself, and they would move it across the wilderness. And perhaps most importantly about this, it was the ark that would lead the way of the migration. It was the symbol to the people that they should follow him. He had led them out of Egypt, and he will lead them to the promised land. Whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, Lord! Let your enemies be scattered. And those who hate you, flee from your presence. And when it came to rest, he would say, Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. This package of the, of, this package of the people of God and God himself were quite the delivery. Now, let's look at when and where the delivery was made. Back to Joshua chapter 
The people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern limits of Jericho. We see here that it was the 10th day of the first month, which was right on time and 40 years late. <laughs> right on time, 40 years late. This day had significance, and it would continue to have significance. Just after Moses had announced the final plague in Egypt that the firstborn would die, God told Moses that the first that the first uh, that the first month, the month that they were in at the time, would now be the first of the year rather than the seventh of the year. They would start a new calendar. And on that tenth day, each family would choose a lamb to be slaughtered on the fourteenth evening of that month, which was the Passover. And on that night, night of the Passover, all those who put the blood on this lamb that was chosen on the tenth day would put this blood on the sides and the top of the doorframe. And all who had done this would be passed over. And the firstborn in that household would be saved. And, just as God said, this judgment against the Egyptians came to pass. The Israelites released from their bondage with plunder, just as it had been promised to Abraham and many years prior. Thus, this tenth day of the month would signify the start of something new. The guarantee of triumph. See, they were crossing this Jordan for a reason, but they were four years late. The Israelites in the ark had been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. After they had crossed the Red Sea and watched the Egyptians be dashed by the water, God brought them with water and food to Mount Sinai, where he would give them his law. We're going to hear more about this next week from Max, so please come back and listen to Max more about this. Now, they would stay in this place for a little over a year. And the only point I'd like to highlight here is that this is where Moses gave them instructions for their migration north to the wilderness of Paran. The instructions that the ark would go before them, and then how they were to organize such a movement, how they were to walk in, in what order. The land they were stopping in, the land that they were going to be heading to from Sinai, would be south of the land that was promised to Abraham. The land was called Canaan. And when they arrived three days later, God told Moses to send in spies into the land to scout it out. That operation took 40 days. So for a moment, I just pause and take some stop. Covered a lot of ground already. These people had a long history. They knew the promise to Abraham, but their enslavement, their delivery from that enslavement. They saw the plagues against the Egyptians. They saw the waters of the Red Sea split in half and then crash back down onto their oppressors while holding the plunder of those people who were there watching die. They then gazed on the mountain of smoke and fire at Sinai and were brought to the threshold of the promised land. All of this, all of it, was first-hand experience that they might fear the Lord and know he would surely deliver on his promises, especially the one to give them this land, a land of rest, flowing with milk and honey. Spies go in. Forty days later, they come out of the land and report that this is without a doubt the promised land. But it's got ites. Malachites. Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Canaanites, not to mention the descendant of Anak, these big, tall, terrible giants. And the cities were strong, fortified. And after all of the experience, you know what their reaction was? 
Let's appoint a leader and go back. <laughs> they were terrified of these guys. Not even a year and a half removed from what God had done to the Egyptians, whose pyramids, probably built by these people, are still standing today. And they feared these people more than the God who delivered them. Joshua is but Caleb pleaded with the people not to fear these ites because the Lord would be with them. But it was too late. Therefore, God would have to continue to teach this fear of him to the people and would do so in the wilderness for 40 years. One year, each day of the scout. And during this time, each of the generations older than 20 years of age would die before reaching the promised land, except for Joshua and Caleb. So this whole mass of people would arrive in the land 40 years later, but right on time. That's so often the case with us. We have been repeatedly shown the wonder and majesty of the Most High God. We've been delivered from various trials and sin. But we turn back to the old gods that try to control. Just at the moment, God gives us a long waiting. One excuse or another. Some complaint. Some fear. Preventing us from walking by faith in the promise of God's love for us. Even our remedies for these problems we're trying to overcome, we, we, we use their, their, their tools of the issues themselves. We try to defeat strong by being stronger. We try to complain less about one thing by complaining about another. God will not have it. But because he is long-suffering, he will take the time to show us how to fear him, even if it takes 40 years of moment. So when the Lord tells you to do something, to go to a place to take a stand for righteousness and justice. He's probably courageous. Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for any? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. Eddie Ray said this this morning. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth far more than many spirits. God loves his people. It is his joy to deliver them from fear and give rest. Let's not do what the Israelites did not. Fear God only by recalling the story of deliverances over and over. Let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Now that we know who and what was being delivered and when the delivery occurred, Let's understand where they were being delivered. If they had entered the land where God had first told them, they would have been entering, as I said earlier, on the south of Canaan. However, in the 40 years of wandering, God had brought them down and around the land to the east of the River Jordan, which was on the border of this Canaan land. This time, the spies would be sent in again to make the report. Two were sent to Jericho, fortified city. Now Jericho was tracking the movements of the people. So these spies, they get into the city, and they're hit by Rahab, who has an insightful conversation with them. She goes up to the roof, and she hid them. Before the spies lay down for the night, 
went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And that a great fear of you has fallen upon us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord cried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Shehanah, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted fear, and everyone's courage failed because of it. Where the Lord your God is God in heaven above and earth below. Now, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives are for you. our lives for your lives. If you don't tell what we've been doing, we'll treat you kindly, faithfully. The Lord gives us this. Now look at this. The first inhabitant of the land they speak knows the history of the people. She's aware of the parting of the waters of the Red Sea, and notes that during their time in the wilderness, two Amorite kings were defeated. Knows also the two sorts of fear that are shown. The people, she says, were melting in fear. The CSB reads that they were panicking, which led them to pursue the men in enmity. Rahab saw the situation differently. Her words were affirmation of the promise given to Abraham. With conviction, she says, I know. The Lord has given you this land. And the Lord your God is the God of heaven above and earth below. Her heart melted in proper fear. Though it meant the destruction of her city, the loss of her home, the toppling of her gods, in faith. She gave the spies a friendly book and received them in peace. Knowing that this was the true way to life. Come what may. This decision would be highly honored in the kingdom forever. It'd be used in the redemption of all people everywhere. The spies returned to Joshua with the report, as Rahab had said. Told them about the agreement that her household would be saved during the conquest. So now we can, after all this journey, turn to how this people was finally delivered and how they would remember it. Then Joshua set up in Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken from the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your children ask their fathers, what is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. Just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. Again, the Lord brought the people through water on dry ground. And this how is quite significant. We see a theme of the sea and great depths all throughout the scriptures as something to contend with. The seas were chaos needing to be restrained, swallowing up the living with unruly thrashing. They're described as raging and roaring, producing monsters, harbingers of death. The flood demonstrating the epitome of this physical force. There's no mistake that God would demonstrate his power over rulers and kingdoms by commanding the waters on two occasions. First, to conclude his victory over the Egyptians, and then to commence his conquest over the Canaanites. 
From the very beginning, God had demonstrated this power as the Spirit hovered over the dark waters at creation. He made light to shine, and he separated the light from the dark. He then separated the waters and made an expanse between called the sky, and it was so. Job writes, as the Lord would say, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. In the Psalms it reads, the water saw you, God. The water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. And this is how the psalmist puts our passage. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people who spoke a foreign language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it sea that you fled, Jordan that you turned back? Mountains that you skipped like rams, hills like lambs. Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the flint into a spring. This delivery was completed in a manner that was meant to provoke an understanding of the Lord that he was far more powerful than any people, place, God, creatures, circumstance, and even death itself. This could not be lost on the Israelites. It was not from a distance that the Lord instructed the waters to stop on either occasion. In Egypt, it read, Then the angel of the Lord, who was going out in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and the Israelite forces. There was cloud and darkness. It lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. He himself did this thing. In the same way at the Jordan, Joshua told the people, Come closer and listen to the words of the Lord your God. He said, You will know that the living God is among you when the ark of the covenant of the Lord of the whole earth goes out ahead of you into the Jordan. When the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the whole the Lord of the whole earth comes to rest in the Jordan's water, its water will be cut off. The water pulling downstream will stand in a mass. And indeed it did. As soon as their feet touched the water's edge, the water stopped. From there, from there, the priest walked to the middle of the dry bed of the Jordan. It reads, the priest carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Then, one man from each of the twelve tribes of Israel retrieved a stone at the center of the river, brought it to the West River Bank. Only then did the priests of the ark cross themselves, and then the waters flowed. This showed not only that the Lord went before them to stay the waters, but that the God of Israel was their new God. So they made it. 
the delivery was complete. And the commemoration of this occasion was to place these stones. Now, we, we hadn't talked much about rocks today, but I would guess you can imagine that if water would play an essential role in this story, why not rocks too? These stones, as consistent with other memorial stones, seem fairly straightforward. The purpose of remembering God's drying up. Yet there were other rocks in between these two sea crossing events. One early in the journey, when the people were thirsty and feared death. Now, now listen closely. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? In a little while, they'll stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go on ahead of the people. Take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take your staff, stuck in the Nile with your hand, and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock and pour you hit the rock, water will come out of it. The people will drink. Did you catch that? Moses fears that the people will strike him. But the Lord says, I will stand in front of the I'll take it. Stay Save both him and him. Later on, the same thing happens. Almost exactly. But this time, the Lord instructs Moses not to strike the rock, but only to speak to it. And then the water will flow. But Moses struck the rock instead. And he struck it twice. It was for this infraction, this sharing in the complaint and impatience of the people that Moses was barred from entering the promised land with his people. This imagery of rocks, and clouds, and wilderness, and land, and feasts, and water. It's pretty cool across all the history of Egypt. But it's a shadow. Left alone, it leaves something to be desired. In fact, if you want to get really bummed out, keep on reading the Old Testament. Watch the people triumph and then utterly fall apart until the Lord stops sending prophets and stays silent. The Apostle Paul writes, Now these things took place as an example for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they do. But you know what he wrote right before that? First Corinthians 10. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Yeah. Everything, everything was about Christ. The true Israel, who was called out of Egypt as a boy. The one who rebuked the wind and raging water. He who was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted. The one who provides streams of living water and was struck for our iniquities. The Lamb who takes away the sins. This rock is the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God. It is He, as the chief cornerstone, who makes it possible for His people to be built up into a spiritual house as living stones. How much better than a heap of memorial stones? Well, there's so much imagery pointing to Christ. The most poignant must be these two things. I mentioned that the deliverance was right on time. The tenth day of the first month. The day that the perfect lamb would be chosen for slaughter as a sign of their redemption. 
without mistake. Just as the ark in the presence of the Lord triumphantly entered the land of rest to inaugurate Israel's kingdom, it was the tenth day of the first month that Jesus rode into Jerusalem as king and the perfect lamb of God takes away the sins of the Lord. And how did he accomplish this? Just like with the ark. He himself has entered the dark waters of sin and death and hell, but they could not contain him. No, as baptism, he victoriously arose from that water and commands the rage against his people to cease and stand firmly on dry ground until every last one has stepped into his eternal rest. Give me a sound the cross. Though the people he created are complainers, rebellious, forgetful, sinful, all of us. Jesus took the punishment for sin that we deserved. Yes. He died on a cross. Where the blood that would be stained up and down and left to right. He could do this because unlike us, he is the perfect lamb without any perfection. Which also meant that death could not be. So three days later, he rose from those deaths and ascended to be crowned with glory and honor. So whoever turns away from their sins and turns to him in proper fear by faith will be saved. It are those who enter the land of his rest that are called his people. This is the good news of the gospel. In this, the prophet Micah says, he will have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers days long ago. And more than that, John says in his vision, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Therefore, in Christ, the one from whom the seas flee, our sins are obliterated forevermore. So why were these Israelites delivered? Verse 24. So that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is fighting. And so that they may always fear the Lord your God. It was for the blessing of many, just as promised to Abraham. Rahab was an early non-Israelite to receive this blessing. Her fear of the Lord brought her redemption will be especially significant. We don't know too much about Rahab, other than the fact that she was a prostitute. Her name had quite negative connotations. It could be translated bluster, rage, fierceness, insolence, pride, worse, sea monster. In fact, in Isaiah, it's written that yeah, and Isaiah writes of Rahab as the waters were, were crossed over. Wake up, wake up, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Wake up as in days past, as in generations long ago. Wasn't it you who hacked Rahab to pieces? Who pierced the sea monster? Wasn't it you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the seabed into a road for the redeemed to pass over? It would be a safe bet without speculating too much about the circumstances of the that Rahab carries some shame. Wondering if such a mighty God would even accept her. Sea monster. But she was proof that God's delivery of his people worked not only for Israelites, but also for a Canaanite woman who feared God and stepped out of his favor. She, along with them, was delivered 
to fear the God of the heavens above and the earth. And she stays in the seat of honor as a figure in Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith and one of four women mentioned in the lineage of Christ. Forty years late, right on time. This God would slay the sea monster Rahab. I chose it to Canaan to Rahab. To be not only his daughter, but a mother to the Christ. Mm-hmm. Feel like Rahab. Fear him. Don't harden your hearts as so many did. Enter his rest and join the people called by his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of the heavens above We thank you, Lord, that though we are patient, we complain, that we simply rebel, you are long-suffering with us. It is your fervent desire to bring us to true rest that we may be called by our name through Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The unblemished lamb takes away the sins of the world. We ask, Lord, that we would fear you and hear us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word with such precision that we could, we could not miss it as your people. If only we would have ears to hear, Lord, give us Thank you. We ask that we continue to read these stories and tremble. That we would draw near. That we would fear you. And that it would cast out all properties. We would be high and lifted up in our mind. Father, we ask for grace upon us. Thank you. Unfortunately, we don't have cup and bread to distribute to everyone today. We're not going to do that. Try again next week. I'm going to invite the uh, praise team to come.